Episode 3 Harm Reduction Act 1 Thank you for not smoking. Smoking is not good for you. Friendly reminder for those who haven't caught onto the endless barrage of health warnings on billboards, magazines, TV, and radio, or on the cigarette packs themselves. And because smoking is not good for you, and makes you and your clothes smell, because it makes your teeth yellow and your skin wrinkly, it is considered a filthy habit that should be scolded. Smokers are looked down upon. They socialize between themselves on cold and rainy nights out. And some of them want to kick the habit. Quitting smoking is hard. Sometimes the hardest thing people ever attempt in their lives. Only a fraction of people can quit cold turkey. So in their efforts to quit smoking, they turn to, let's say, less scientifically sound methods. Jim started using chewing tobacco when he was just 12 years old. But acupuncture can help smokers and chewers alike quit tobacco for good. Clearly, the addiction isn't an easy one to beat, but there's an unusual treatment helping some people, hypnosis. Meet Steve Davis. He recently had a heart attack. He says the health scare is just one of the reasons he's turning to hypnosis. If getting a needle inserted or being whispered in your ear doesn't quite do the trick for you, chances are you've attempted nicotine replacement therapy, or NRT. NRT is everything from nicotine chewing gums, patches, inhalers, lozenges, or nose spray that is supposed to help you get nicotine without using cigarettes. The problem with NRT is not the fact that people chew too much gum now, but that for many smokers, it's simply not effective. Smoking rates are in decline in many countries in the world, and that has many reasons. It's considered less socially acceptable. It's more expensive. There's more awareness towards the health risks that are associated. But how do we help the remaining smokers quit if that's what they want to do? What if there was a way to consume nicotine that wasn't exactly harmless, but contained a lot less harm than smoking cigarettes? The first documented reference to an electronic cigarette is a patent granted to Joseph Robinson in 1930, filed in 1927. But that never went anywhere. In the 1960s, Herbert A. Gilbert created the first device that most resembles the modern e-cigarette but it was also never commercialized. His theory was that the tobacco industry at the time had a vested interest in it not being brought to market. He told an e-cigarette blog, quote, Those I showed it to could have done it, but they chose to wait for the patent to expire and then file their own versions. I showed it to chemical companies, pharmaceutical companies and tobacco companies, and they did what they did to try to protect their markets. I'm sure that many great inventions that could have benefited people in the past, and even today, receive the same treatment. As John Cameron pointed out to me, timing can be everything, and I was ahead of my time, and in the midst of what some might say was the most powerful advertising period of big tobacco. End of quote. Vaping through e-cigarettes only took off much later, and in a very different place. The first commercially successful e-cigarette was created by Hon Leek, a 52-year-old Chinese pharmacist, inventor, and smoker. He reportedly created the device after his father, also a heavy smoker, died of lung cancer. About three years later, his e-cigarette makes it to Europe, then to the United States. In the last 15 years, vaping has become mainstream. It's available in different sizes, colors. Every available taste under the sun has been produced for vape liquids. There's vaping communities and blogs and magazines, and like every movement, even infighting within vaping groups. I now need to know what a disposable is, what closed and open systems are, which wattage is right for my device, and who the good and the bad brands are. And then there's the eternal metric of knowing whether something is popular. If Saturday Night Live makes fun of it. Like a lot of people, I love to smoke. But my friends and family always make me go outside to do it. So that's why I now use e-meth. It's crystal meth, but electronic. So it produces vapor instead of smoke. And that means I can ride the ice pony anywhere I want. Full disclosure, e-meth is not a thing. Also, don't do meth. Sound advice. Vaping is not just popular because it's quirky and new, but because it helps smokers quit. A major clinical trial led by Queen Mary University found that e-cigarettes are more effective than nicotine replacement therapies if you want to quit smoking. According to Public Health England, vaping is 95% less harmful than smoking cigarettes. Countless studies have confirmed the effectiveness and safety of vaping. I'm also a consumer and former smoker, and thanks to vaping, I was able to quit smoking. 
um, already six years or seven years now ago. Michael Landl is the director of the World Papers Alliance, a global advocacy group of people who defend their right to use nicotine products, including e-cigarettes, heat-not-burn devices and others. They got their hands full. Individual members and vape shop owners try to defy legislation that limits access to vaping products. There's the elephant in the room. Each conversation about vaping and harm reduction narrows down to it. So let's address it first. Nicotine. We can only look at whether vaping is a harm reduction tool depending on whether nicotine is a concern or not. We need to get away from the discussion about nicotine per se because um, there are plenty of studies out there which say that nicotine is not the problem. And I think that's now widely recognized. Obviously, can, it's an addictive um, substance. But smoke is already addictive to nicotine and all the other things. So um, that is not really the issue. And um, in the UK, some researchers actually compared it to um, caffeine addiction. So I think nobody, there is no scaremongering or no moral panic about caffeine addiction. And I think if we can separate the, the actual harms of smoking and nicotine consumption, like we do with vaping or snooze or nicotine pouches. Nicotine per se is not the the real issue. It's about getting people away from smoking, and that we can do with higher levels of nicotine. And then most people um, wane off it and reduce it over time. I did the same. I started very high, and now I have a six milligram nicotine level, which is not not really much. So, is nicotine a harmful substance? At Consumer Choice Center, we ran a poll last year with tobacco consumers and general practitioners in Germany and France. And one of the questions was whether people thought nicotine causes cancer. 69% of smokers in France and 74% in Germany think it does. Most doctors we polled also had a negative view on nicotine. All right, simple Google search. Does nicotine cause cancer? Quote, no. Nicotine is a common chemical compound found in tobacco plants, and its effect is to make tobacco addictive rather than to cause cancer directly. People who are addicted are more likely to continue to expose themselves to the carcinogens in smoked or smokeless tobacco, end of quote, says the World Health Organization. You know, the organization you heard about in the last episode. It is also not on the list of carcinogens of the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And in fact, nicotine, believe it or not, has benefits, for instance, by making you more focused. Andrew Huberman is a prominent voice in talking about the facts about nicotine. He's a podcaster and neuroscientist and talks about nicotine in very technical terms. Here's a clip from his podcast, Huberman Labs. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. You don't need to know too much about it to just understand that nicotine both increases dopamine, but also decreases the activity of GABA. And so this is like pushing on the accelerator for dopamine, but also removing the brake. So there's a two-pronged effect of nicotine on reinforcement reward dopamine related pathways, the feel good motivation pathways. And that is an increase in dopamine and a decrease in GABA. And again, that's all mediated through this mesolimbic reward pathway involving the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. Huberman also has quite a fan base through his neuroscience analyses, not just on nicotine, but also on other behavioral traits that people have and how to improve themselves. The notion that nicotine is not your enemy per se is controversial in the anti-smoking community because to them it relativizes the risks of smoking. In episode 806, titled I Can't Quit You, Baby, of the cult classic radio show and podcast This American Life, guest host Sean Cole tells the story of how he attempts to quit smoking. He interviews John Dicey, global CEO of Alan Carr's Easy Way Worldwide. Alan Carr was a British author who developed the Easy Way Method, outlined in his book, The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. It's a popular book that has helped countless people to stop smoking. John Dicey is his successor, continuing to help people quit smoking, but also someone very critical of Huberman, who says that there are benefits to nicotine. So when the book says that it, that it doesn't physically aid in concentration, just scientifically it does aid in concentration. No, it, he's wrong. You think he's wrong? I don't think he's wrong. I know he's wrong. He's a neurobiologist. I don't care what he is. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not being disrespectful yeah, to him. Yeah, no, sure. He has a theory. He's, he's well, it's theory, based on, you know, I mean, it's based on... It's just wrong. Tests. On many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm struggling to understand why there's a desperation to prove or, or 
believe that nicotine does something mm -hmm. when it doesn't. I've never heard so much nonsense in my life. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Very nice guy, I'm sure. And I'm sure he believes what he's saying. But it's absolute nonsense. I think that's where we're misunderstanding each other because I'm not looking for positives of nicotine. I, I was just looking for, like, what what is the mechanism? I was just, like, looking mm. for what is the mechanism. And when I learned about the different neurochemicals that, that nicotine evokes in the brain, um, it just felt like that the method was predicated on a lie. That, like, so your, that nicotine... your feeling is that you would you'll take nicotine for the rest of your life? N no, although... Anna... Why not? Huh? Why not? Uh, well, it wasn't my plan. It wasn't my plan because... Uh, Why isn't your plan? Why isn't your plan if it's giving you these tremendous benefits, you, you, you struggle without it, why, why wouldn't you just take it for the rest of your life? I think because there are health detriments. They're nothing like... Smoking. Things got spicy like, with John Dicey. Uh, you know, older, he emailed me more than once, older, weeks after the fact, to say he was still reeling from the interview. Doesn't understand why anyone would push back at the Alan Carr Easy Way method. We've only ever done good in the world, he said. That's like kicking a cat. And why would anyone ever suggest there was a benefit to nicotine, other than maybe the tobacco companies or big pharma? If it was true, mm -hmm. I could almost live with that. If nicotine did make it easier for people to concentrate, non-nicotine addicts, to concentrate. Mm -hmm. I could live with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm genuinely interested in looking at the studies you've looked at if there were advantages to it, I'd certainly acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. um, but but there aren't. It's just. I guess how can you say there aren't when you say that you haven't looked at the science when that that it's just not and that's fine that it's not interesting to you. Mm. But when it's not interesting to you and so you haven't really read about it and Alan didn't really read about it, mm. then how then how can you say it's not true? It's just it's irrelevant, isn't it? Mm. I don't know. I, do, uh, I wouldn't want to spend too much time discussing whether the moon's made out of cheese. I'm pretty sure it isn't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think the you know it's hugely dangerous to talk about, you know, um, that there might be um, benefits to nicotine when it's just simply not true. Alan Carr's easy way method works for a lot of people to help them quit smoking. There's nothing wrong with that. But what is so telling about John Dicey's response here is that he's not interested in the science. He's interested in protecting the bottom line of a method that seeks for people to quit tobacco cold turkey. That this doesn't work for everyone seems to be beyond his understanding. A lot of the legislation we're seeing about vaping is predicated on the idea that nicotine is the malicious substance, not as much as the carcinogens in cigarettes. That is why vaping is increasingly treated the same way cigarettes are, even though vaping is the less harmful way that helps people quit. Back to Michael Lundell. For decades, basically, it was basically the same because we only had cigarettes as a nicotine delivery mechanism. So basically, um, all the harms uh, which come from smoking were always lumped together. Obviously, then you had nicotine in there as well. So it was always the same smoking kills. We all know that. But then when vaping came along, probably 15, 20 years ago, it was the first time that we could separate nicotine consumption from most of the harms coming from, from smoking and cigarettes. And obviously, first of all, that takes a while that people realize that, but also a lot of these um, anti-tobacco activists, they refuse to acknowledge this. Um, I think within science, there is no debate anymore that vaping is way less harmful than, than smoking. But... We see vaping had a, had a real influence in smoking rates. We see them everywhere where vaping becomes popular, smoking rates decline. So basically, we are winning the war against smoking or the war on cigarettes. But obviously, a lot of organizations then feel the pressure justifying their own existence. And now this whole movement morphed into a war on nicotine, even though nicotine per se is not really harmful. Vaping is the new tobacco. That is the premise of the war on nicotine. Michael has a theory as to why that is. If we look at basically all countries where vaping is popular, it's in US, UK, um, parts of Europe, we see record low smoking rates in those countries, but at the same time, nobody is celebrating that. Now they find this new target and this new war on nicotine instead of, of cigarettes. And this whole conversation moved away. And I think a lot of these activists and organizations lost sight of the actual goal, namely reducing harms and reducing harms in that 
space is getting people away from cigarettes and vaping is doing that very successfully. Um, and we see that everywhere in all statistics, vaping is a gateway out of smoking and not vice versa. So that's crystal clear, actually. But as you, as you mentioned, in the media, it's portrayed differently because in the US, we can't even find um, enough smoking teenagers anymore. So there needs to be a new story about those kind of things. He's not wrong. Vaping has become a bit of an obsession in the American media cycle, though, to be fair, 10 minutes of watching American television will make you feel unnecessarily hyped up and thoroughly confused over which impending epidemic, virus or breaking news avalanche you should worry about more. Take a close look. This student is outfitted with vaping devices, but you can't see them. Why? They're designed to look just like normal school gear for sale online and in vape shops, giving kids new ways to hide their vaping habits anywhere they go, including school. We're going to plant these hidden vaping devices and bring in teachers and parents and see just how well they do at spotting the vape. I get to work. Here's one that's designed to look just like a black marker. Stashing stuff all over the classroom. So this guy looks like a USB. It's not. It's a vape. They are worried about a vape pen. They should see what we were doing when I was the same age, namely smoking cigarettes. At the conclusion of Act 1, Michael Lundell one more time to get the sourcing right. Are we absolutely certain that vaping is less harmful than smoking cigarettes? Originally, Public Health England um, came up with the number uh, that it's 95% less harmful. But nowadays, we have a lot of studies who all confirmed that. The King's College uh, meta-analysis, it's the largest review of all the um, vaping studies, reconfirmed that in 2022. So I think there is no debate anymore that vaping is not less harmful than than uh, smoking and um, the safer nicotine uh, wiki page they they collected all the evidence and they came up with more than a hundred governmental and non-governmental organizations who all confirmed that it is uh, less harmful than smoking so i think there is no debate about this anymore and even activists admit that and that's why the whole conversation always moves to different kind of things, the gateway theory and those kind of things, and not to the, to the harm or the non-harm anymore. Act 2. Just say no. During the presidency of Ronald Reagan from 1981 to 1989, his wife, the First Lady Nancy Reagan, was on a mission. While her husband told Gorbachev to tear down the wall, Nancy Reagan focused on a prevalent domestic issue, drug use. She campaigned under the slogan, Just Say No, the no being towards drugs. She held campaign rallies, speeches, Meetups with concerned mothers, there were t-shirts and hats and mugs with the slogan Just Say No, and there was a nationally broadcasted speech. Many of you may be thinking, well, drugs don't concern me, but it does concern you. It concerns us all because of the way it tears at our lives and because it's aimed at destroying the brightness and life of the sons and daughters of the United States. For five years, I've been traveling across the country, learning and listening and one of the most hopeful signs I've seen is the building of an essential new awareness of how terrible and threatening drug abuse is to our society. Nancy Reagan's heart was in the right place, I'm not doubting that. The phenomenon of drug abuse that she describes is not just real, it's a real problem. What Just Say No also did, however, was make all drug use seem pathological, an oversimplification that allowed no nuance in the debate on the war on drugs that had begun under President Richard Nixon. Just don't start in the first place has become a convenient trope for people who favor harsh drug laws. Decades on from Nancy Reagan's speech, a lot has changed. Arguably, the war on drugs continues, but it's more pinpointed. Some states in the U.S. have legalized cannabis. Other states have even reconsidered their stance on more potent narcotics. This policy change did not come out of nowhere. It was the work of a lot of people some of which have risen to considerable prominence. Yeah, hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman. I'm the uh, founder and former executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, which uh, is really the leading organization in the U.S., perhaps the world, 
working to end the war on drugs. Ethan Nadelman is one of the most respected people in the drug legalization movement. Speeches, TED Talks, books, academic articles, and decades of advocacy for harm reduction. When you look at the range of places that have legal weed, Nadelman says, you're also looking at the positive result of his advocacy. And I have to say, I mean, you look at marijuana, I mean, that's, you know, obviously, you know, in terms of my legacy, that will be the greatest victory of all because, you know, back in the 1980s, barely 25% of Americans wanted to legalize marijuana and barely 50% wanted to legalize it for medical purposes. And now we look at the United States, you know, 38 states have legalized medical marijuana. 23, I think it is, have legalized marijuana for all adults. A majority of Americans live in states where marijuana, you know, is legal. Other countries from Canada to Uruguay to Thailand to Malta to other places are, are moving in that direction. So that was a, a monumental victory. I don't think there's any going back from that. In April 1988, Nadelman writes a piece for foreign policy titled U.S. Drug Policy a bad export, in which he argued that instead of fighting Latin American nations on drug crime, the United States should instead pursue legalization. He had a long road ahead of him. Uh, first as an academic, studying drug policy and the drug war and the internationalization of the drug war, and uh, then beginning in the late 1980s, really being at the, uh, at the very beginning stages of the modern drug policy reform movement. So doing that first as an academic, and then having the good fortune to get a call of the blue from a philanthropist named George Soros, which uh, enabled me to leave the university and start up an advocacy project around ending the drug war, and then eventually to build that into a freestanding organization with a broad base of funding um, that did everything from ballot initiatives to state legislative reform um, uh, to working in the courts to public education, and really focusing in three major areas. Um, one third of the work was about ending marijuana prohibition, uh, first medically and then for all adults. The second third of the war work was about ending the role of the drug war in mass incarceration. And that involved mostly drugs other than marijuana, but really rolling back, getting rid of mandatory minimums, providing alternatives to incarceration. And the last third of the work was making a serious commitment to treating drug use and addiction as a health issue, uh, not a criminal issue, uh, really advancing harm reduction strategies. And so that meant focusing on reducing the spread of HIV AIDS through making sterile syringes available through pharmacies and needle exchanges. It meant dealing with the overdose issue. Um, through harm reduction measures. It meant a, a more sex education approach to drug education. It meant teaching Americans about how Europeans were dealing with, dr with drugs. And, and uh, all along, I was kind of keeping my ears open uh, on this issue around tobacco and the possibility that harm reduction might apply as much or more so to tobacco as it did to the illicit drugs. Well, let's um, let's let, let's go by uh, defining the terms here as well for people listening right now who hear harm reduction for the first time. Can you just uh, give us a bit of an intro there? What does that mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, really, harm reduction. There's really four potential definitions here, right? The first really emerged around needle exchange programs. It was the realization forty years ago. Uh, as AIDS was beginning to spread around the world, not just sexually, but that people realized it was setting, spreading not because people were using drugs, but because they were sharing syringes and the syringes were infected by somebody who had AIDS injecting drugs and then sharing his syringe with somebody else. And so harm reduction just was a very simple idea about, damn, if you can't get people to stop shooting drugs, well, at least try to get them to stop sharing the infected needles so that they won't die of AIDS or potentially Hep C. Just a basic pragmatic step, right? The second definition of harm reduction was the one that applied it more broadly. It's harm reduction, not just about that, but it's like if you're talking about, you know, people who are taking drugs and making sure that naloxone is available so that if they overdose, that they can be resuscitated. But even things like, you know, if you're engaging in, a, if you play football, wear a helmet. If you go bicycle riding, wear a helmet. You know, um, you know if, you're, if, if you're drinking, drink less. If you drive a car, you know, wear, a, wear seat belts. I mean, it's all the ways to reduce the risks and harms of activities that are regarded as either either risky or by other people as immoral. And then the third definition was a kind of broader policy definition, 
which is that we need to aim, we being government and society, needs to aim to reduce not just the harms associated with a risky activity like drugs among people who are unable or unwilling to stop doing that, but we also need to reduce the harms associated with government policies, right? That government maybe needs to be active here, but they don't need to be locking up so many people. Or if they're dealing with a problem around drug gangs, whether they're drug gangs on the American or inner cities or whether they're major criminal organizations in Latin America, well, we need to think in a sophisticated ways about how we focus on those strategies that will result in the least cumulative harm. For example, focusing not on seizing drugs, but more on targeting those organizations that are most criminally violent. So that was the policy definition. And then the fourth definition was really twofold. It's one that says when you're trying to help people, let's say who are addicted to drugs, you have to meet them where they're at. You know, this whole thing like, I'm not going to help you unless, you unless you're totally absent. Only when you're totally absent can I help you get your life together. No, you try to meet people where they're at. You accept the fact that baby steps can help. That if people are addicted to drugs, if they can stop using them every day and just use them some days, stop using them in the mornings and only use them in the evenings, don't use them around their kids, don't use them at work, do it at another time. Instead of smoke, instead of injecting drugs, smoke them. Better than smoking, you should take them orally. There's any way in which you can reduce the harms and and not judging and then that last element not judging people because of their drug use right judge people about how they act towards other human beings but don't judge people because of the substance that they put in their own body whether it's whether it's marijuana or alcohol or tobacco or heroin or methamphetamine don't make a judgment on a human being based upon what they put in their body Judge them based upon how they're acting towards other human beings. Over 1 billion people are currently smoking on this planet. And there's an estimated 7 to 8 million people dying each year from smoking cigarettes, says Nadelman. As he moved away from some of the completed missions of drug policy reform, he moved into tobacco harm reduction. Incidentally, an issue just as controversial today as clean needle exchanges, criminal justice reform or the legalization of cannabis were in the 1980s. The core arguments were the same um, in terms of the fact that, look, the best way not to die from cigarette smoking is just to damn quit, just like with illegal drugs. But for a lot of people, they find it difficult to quit. And we know that almost everybody who tries to quit, they have to quit two, five, 10, 20, 50 times. And you never really know you quit until, oh my God, you're on your deathbed. You say, you know what? I didn't smoke for the last 30 years, right? I mean, so, so it's about helping people reduce the harms to themselves. And you know, it was notable that I, as well as the first and second, uh, the founder and his successor as head of the International Harm Reduction Association, Pat O'Hare and then Jerry Stimson, you know, sort of my equivalent as the leading uh, advocate for drug policy reform in Australia, Alex Wodak, a range of others, we, all of whom we had all spent decades, you know, working on illicit drugs and harm reduction and ending the drug war. And we all became passionate about this issue in the last decade. Um, and then, of course, the other thing was that, I mean, I just say, like, on a kind of intellectual, emotional, personal level, I realized at some point, you know, years ago, that I was drawn to those issues where all of the science and the evidence and the health and the human rights were pointing in one direction and the public, the politicians and the media were going the other direction. And to me, that just seemed to me like a growing bubble. And for me, I wanted to do is like get out there and find the ways to pop that bubble, you know, as soon as possible. And quite frankly, the whole anti-harm reduction thing now, the craze about opposing e-cigarettes because of the uptake among young people and ignoring the benefits to current smokers, you know, the potential benefits here. I mean, I just think that this so much resembles what got me interested in drug policy reform back in the day. It, it still does not have the elements of mass incarceration, thank God, but I worry about that happening down the road. The racial justice dimension, which was a major part of my work around drug policy reform, is just a minor element so far in the big fight over tobacco. But if we move increasingly towards prohibitionist strategies, rest assured there will be an ever-growing element of racial, you know, racial injustice as well as class-based injustice, right? So, you know, but when it comes to trying to help people take steps in order to reduce the harms in their own lives, 
and to try to get government to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing, which basically boils down, by the way, to incentivizing both consumers and producers, including big industry and government monopolies, to basically incentivize both the consumers and the producers to move as rapidly as possible from combustible forms of tobacco into the non-combustible forms of tobacco and nicotine, right? I mean, to sum it up, if I could snap my fingers and tomorrow all of the 30 or 35 million American smokers were to switch entirely to e-cigarettes or nicotine pouches or all of the billion plus people around the world were to make that same switch, it would represent perhaps one of the greatest advances in public health in human history, both in this country and globally. And that would still be true, even if huge numbers of young people were still using e-cigarettes and using these pouches. In a very Ethan Nadelman way, he summarizes a couple of points into one, unfiltered. Remember, nicotine doesn't cause cancer. What kills people is the burnt particle matter, the combustible stuff. That's why the public health service in Britain and, and the Royal College of Physicians has estimated that e-cigarettes are 90 to 95% less dangerous to human health than are cigarettes, right? But you still get that sort of stupid, uneducated, you're just substituting one addiction for another. Right now. And then you also, of course, go the kids, the kids, the kids. You know, why couldn't we legalize medical marijuana? I got to protect the kids. Why can't we have needle change programs? Got to protect the kids. Why can't we reduce these harsh mandatory sentences? Got to protect the kids. I mean, I mean, there's always holding up, you know, as if the whole basically the whole drug war being justified as one great big child protection act. And that's exactly what's happening with the tobacco issue now. Why can't we? do everything possible to get out their alternatives, alternative forms of nicotine and tobacco, including flavored products. Got to protect the kids. Got to protect the kids. Tobacco harm reduction has many enemies. People who believe that vape devices are nothing but a scheme of big tobacco companies to stay relevant in an era where fewer people are smoking. That's not just a cynical view. It proves itself to be an inaccurate one, too. While it is correct that smoking rates in the developed world are falling, Nothing says that they won't increase in the developing world. According to the Scientific American, nowhere else has the number of smokers increased more since 1990 than in Africa. 104% in North Africa and in the Middle East, and almost 75% in Sub-Saharan Africa. Unfortunately, tobacco harm reduction does not come natural to those countries because of the misconception associated with it. One country in Europe, however, has championed tobacco harm reduction. The United Kingdom. The UK has refrained from punitive bans on vaping and even has a swap to stop campaign launched by the London Tobacco Alliance in collaboration with the NHS and the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities to incentivize people to swap their cigarettes for e-cigarettes. Here's NHS official Martin McRae in the campaign launch video. All of my colleagues working with patients with service users are enormously busy. And it's easy for someone in a grey suit and a tie to go, look at the evidence, it's very clear. But make time to talk to your fellow professionals who are informed on this subject. Get that evidence in your head. And that will make your job, not just now, but in the future, more rewarding and easier. Because you'll see fewer people coming through your doors with those devastating conditions. But how is it possible that while continental Europe is trying to battle vaping products, banning flavors of e-liquids in Estonia and the Netherlands, restricting sales locations and imposing punitive taxes, that the National Health Service in the UK recommends to pregnant women who are smokers to switch to vaping? A stark contrast that, incidentally, happened by chance. You might remember Chris Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs from episode yeah, one. That, that he tells the story. It'd be nice to say that, you know, we had a royal commission to look at this in great detail and they said the best approach here is laissez-faire, but unfortunately that's not what happened. What actually happened is there's a guy called David Halpern who was in what we have, we call the Nudge Unit, the Behavioral Insights Team, and they were brought in by David Cameron. This is one of his big ideas to you know, find a third way in British politics. We're going to use behavioral economics a lot more. And David Halpern met a friend of his called uh, Rory Sutherland, who's in advertising, who writes for The Spectator. And Rory Sutherland's a big gadget guy, loves his new gadgets. And he'd just been to somewhere in Asia and he brought back an e-cigarette. This would be about 2010, maybe 2011 at the latest. 
and uh, he showed it to David Halpern, said this looks really interesting, this could get a lot of people off cigarettes. Now at the time Cameron was thinking about banning these things outright. Halpern then intervened and said let's just leave it alone for a while and see how it goes. From then on there was a, a you know the cottage industry of vaping sprung up in Britain and very quickly and word spread without any involvement from the public outside either positively or negatively people just spontaneously started trying these products out and people were spontaneously giving up smoking in quite large numbers. Now I mentioned before there are some people in public health who actually do care about health and some people who work in, in smoking and actually speak to smokers now and again, meet sp smokers, um, and they saw that these were working and they saw that the, the other stuff they were re recommending, the, the smoking cessation clinics and the, the patches and the gums, they were not working so well. And so again, a very small number of people who happen to have a bit of influence said, look, I've seen these things in action. They work. They're actually going to get the smoking rate down. Bear in mind the smoking rate had barely fallen for quite a few years despite a torrent of anti-smoking legislation. So in a way, this was a chance for the anti-smoking lobby to save their blushes because their own policies just weren't having any real effect. Um, and so in a way, it was good luck. It was just, you know, two people who knew each other <laughs> happened to bump into each other. And then a handful of people within the British public health establishment, which was at best divided on this issue, just got together and they got involved with the Public Health England report, which then was very encouraging towards vaping. Um, and so far, it's been pretty good. There is a, There are actually now talks about banning disposable vapes, and there's a whole moral panic about vaping, and you know things are looking dicier than they were. But essentially, it came down to mainly good luck, a, few, a handful of good people being in positions of relative power, and also the fact that Britain, more than most countries, did have a... Um, a, uh, a, a track record of thinking about harm reduction and understanding it. Um, people like Michael Russell years ago had said, you know, people smoke for the nicotine but die from the tar. So the idea that a product like this could emerge and be a solution was already hanging in the air to some extent, in a way that maybe it wasn't so much in other countries. The UK is not without fault, though, as the government under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is now considering a generation ban on tobacco products which would introduce prohibition and hamper the years of progress on tobacco harm reduction that the UK has made. But for all it's worth, Swap to Stop and other measures have made the UK better on this issue than others. Act 3. Difficult goodbyes. Chances are high that you, the listener, know someone who had severe health consequences resulting from smoking tobacco. Illness is a strain on the person who has it, but almost equally so on the people who surround them. The disruption in your daily life, the thoughts of impending loss, it's not pretty. Hi everybody, my name is Kurt Jo. I'm a consumer activist for tobacco harm reduction, in particular vaping, and I live in South Africa. In my work on this series, I've read a lot about tobacco harm reduction, and you've also heard some of the experts I've talked to in this episode. But hearing the way Kurt Yo explained his journey made it real. I smoked for 20 years and at the height of my smoking uh, addiction, it was 40 cigarettes a day. Um, I started, I, I come from a smoking family. Both my parents smoked, all my aunties and uncles, except for maybe one or two did uh, smoke. Uh, all their friends were smokers. Um, smoking was just something the family does. Um, I think I started smoking when I got, uh, you know, when you get into the high school, late high school area and, you, and you're and you around individuals. You know, that's, that's some time ago. We were talking about uh, late 80s, early 90s. And smoking was, was, you know, what pretty much everybody kind of did, particularly in South Africa. We had incredibly high smoking rates. So I couldn't really say what made me start smoking. Smoking just happened to be part of, of our, our lives. Um, I can still remember as a little boy being asked to go buy cigarettes for all the family members when we had a, a local party or a local family get together. And I would know, you know, everybody's brand or particular, you know, brand that they like. I knew my grandfather liked this particular brand and my, this uncle liked that brand. And I always knew what my father's brands were. So it wasn't something that, you know, 
th that was it. It was just smoking was it. And when I was in high school and uh, eventually when I left high school and went to college, smoking was, was just what kind of everybody did. You know, that's, that's where it was. Let's talk about that time. So when you were um, when you were smoking, were there campaigns that were trying to get you to stop smoking? Were there advisories? Were there uh, people in the schools? Was there was there any indication that you should this is a bad habit and you should probably end it? It was quite a while ago. So um, when I, when I, in those days, so I don't believe there was. I, you know, I I know that. A lot of doctors would say in that stage, particularly when it was too late. I, I remember when my grandfather had his first um, bypass surgery um, because he did struggle for some time. Um, he quit smoking after that first bypass. And he um, and during that time, it was like, you know, smoking was that cause. But I can't remember in my youth or when I was in in, in college that there was any kind of campaign of any substance to promote uh, the reduction of smoking. Um, I can't recall. Was there, because you say in your entire family everyone uh, smoked cigarettes, were there health consequences that family members of yours had to deal with as a result of, of smoking? Oh, absolutely. I, I lost both my parents to smoking. I've lost both my grandparents, uh, grandfathers to smoking, and I've lost a number of uh, of uncles and family friends um, to smoking. So smoking has been quite devastating to our family um, and to our, our you know our, our circle of friends. Um, so yes, there was there was a lot of damage in there, and in fact, it was my father's death the the day before our planned wedding over 21 years ago that prompted me to um, quit smoking. It wasn't only really that. I, I'm very fortunate. I married a, um, a lifelong friend um, who happens to be a specialist doctor. She's a pediatrician. And at that stage, she was warning me as well as the family the dangers of smoking. And um, it was my father's death that really convinced me that I should give it a good go to quit. Take us through this uh, this journey. Um, of course, I'm very sorry to hear that. It's very traumatic uh, events that that that, that, go, that you know people have to go through. Um, and and was that you say that was a trigger for you? So was that was that instance where you're like I have to take action now? Was it or was it more of a a longer journey? And and how did you actually try to stop smoking when you when you did? What was your method? You know, one of the most interesting things that I think about it, and when I mean, you're talking, we're now talking 17, no, almost 18 years ago, 18, 19. No, it's, sorry, I'm, I'm wrong. It's 20, 20 years ago. I can remember um, the very first thing I did after I saw my father's um, lying in the bed, because this was before any of the ambulances or anybody came to, to, um, to, to come recover the recover my father um i i still remember after that initial thing the first thing that came to my mind is i need a cigarette um which was <laughs> absolutely bizarre um and it, that his death and obviously the trauma around you know him being for the everybody being around for the wedding and then suddenly the wedding has to be postponed and then there was a funeral that to be arranged and it was very traumatic um the, it still was the catalyst that after the funeral, um, I then said I needed to quit smoking and I, I attempted it and tried it. Um, I've tried um, mainly only the cold turkey approach. Um, I didn't I didn't attempt nicotine replacement therapies or um, or uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and I struggled. I, I struggled for many years to quit. And unfortunately, every time you attempt to quit and you fail, um, it just adds more of that pressure. And, and you feel like a failure. I can't do this. And eventually, I, um, I you know, just succumbed to the idea that I'm just going to be a smoker. And, and I just continue the same path as my parents did. At that stage, my mom was still alive. But just the same path as my as as many family members is that you just can't and it wasn't until much later when i started working in this in this line that i realized that only four percent of individuals um, that attempt to quit without support without mechanisms 
ever succeed and it takes up to 30 attempts for individuals to quit um, and it was only Einstein knew that knowledge that I realized that that we've got a big problem here a very big problem um, and then when if you look at the success rate of nicotine replacement therapies um, that doesn't make it a far greater number I mean we're looking at anywhere up to nine nine percent at most uh, if we're using nicotine replacement therapies so yeah uh, it took it took forever and in fact it, it wasn't successful uh, i kept failing continuously and there was not because i didn't want to it's just i just couldn't um until i, I, I stumbled across vaping <laughs> let's get to that then so you say you stumbled across vaping um how, how did that happen so the reality is that, is that during that stage we we had the small cigarettes and so forth, and I tried that. I don't consider, although the mechanisms are still still the same, that it uh, it releases an, an aerosol and not a smoke. They were incredibly unsuccessful, so I don't even consider that as my first real vape. Um, we used to have a, a, a second generation of uh, device in South Africa that was a South African device uh, that became incredibly popular. That helped me uh, reduce my smoking uh, numbers or smoking count but it was a chance meeting that I had in a parking lot um, at my office where an individual was selling imported uh, vapes from um, from China and the e-liquids were coming from the United States that I decided to give it a shot and try it and within three days of that I um, had quit smoking altogether. Um, just, it was unbelievable. It was remarkable. Um, I don't believe non-smokers out there understand what that means to somebody that is trying so desperately to quit. Is that when that does happen and you know that it's going to work, what it means to that individual, it, it is remarkable. Um, particularly, and I think, uh, you know, in my case, we had, a, you know, there was a lot of pressure and there was a lot of, angst and anxiety around not being able to quit because at that stage being married having a young baby in the house uh, my wife being a pediatrician there was a lot of pressure around me trying to quit and the failure was 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 enormous but it was that chance meeting in a parking lot that i picked up my first um kanga tech mod with a 18650 and um, as i said within three days on a strawberry dessert um, e-liquid quit and never ever touched the cigarette then since. Pertio has stopped smoking, defying the curse of heavy smoking that was in his family. His approach is that of empathy, not of judgment, to people who seek to reduce their smoking or quit it completely. Regulation, he says, needs to take into account to what extent the fanciful nature of vaping is part of the harm reduction effect. I mentioned it at the start of this episode vape flavors in terms of the flavor I, I, I think flavors are critical um, the taste of tobacco is actually revolting I know some people like that taste but as as Michael Russell had always indicated people smoke for nicotine but die from the top um, so it wasn't you know it it almost overshadows anything you could put the most horrendous tasting thing in, in a cigarette um, and it, people would still smoke it because of that nicotine. Um, so the flavors are, are critical because they, they, do, they do keep the smoker interested. They do keep it, uh, they keep it pleasurable, uh, is I think the most important thing, is that now you're enjoying something um, as well as getting the nicotine that you want, um, and it's less harmful. And it's doing what it's what it what it was originally designed to do is help you quit smoking. Um, so flavors were critical, and I've changed flavor profiles over the years to many things. But I can tell you quite with with absolute honesty, tobacco has never featured in any of those years. Tobacco to me still is not something that I enjoy. I I don't like it. In fact, I don't even test a tobacco flavor. I haven't tested a tobacco flavor in years purely because I just know it doesn't, it's not enjoyable. Estonia has banned vape flavors. The Netherlands is currently in the process. The argument is that it attracts children to vaping. The fact that adults also like flavors is forgotten. Whether it's flavors, the myth of vaping being a gateway drug, 
the idea that nicotine causes cancer or that vaping is the new tobacco, the debate over prohibiting harm reduction tools is not going away. What is often forgotten in the conversation over policy is the people it all impacts. I asked Kurt Yo if he had a message to people listening who currently smoke cigarettes and wish to quit. This is what he said. I think as a smoker, the most important decision that you will ever make in your life is the decision to, to quit, deciding to quit. I think after that is to explore ways and means that would help you to quit. I'll, I'll never for one say you have to go vape. Um, you have to go do this. I'm saying is do your research, speak to individuals, go to those those independent vape shops. I, I don't think going to a, a kiosk or to the local a local shop in the corner or one of those major retail chains and then go buying a product there. I'm suggesting go speak to the small independent shops because nine out of 10 times you'll find somebody that's behind the counter that's gone through the experience and be able to help you there. So do a lot of the research, find a product that, that, that will that could assist you, but more importantly, persist. Fun Police is a Consumer Choice Center original podcast. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Bill Wirtz, contributing research by Elizabeth Hicks and Emil Panjau, editing by Jan Lasowski and myself. Ethan Nadelman has his own podcast. It's called Psychoactive. You can find it on all the major podcast players. You can find the World Vapors Alliance on social media. They also have a podcast called Vaping Unplugged and their website, worldvaporsalliance.com. Check out our other podcasts, Consumer Choice Podcast and Consumer, spelled with EU. Links in the description. Thank you for those who support our work with a donation, consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. The next episode will be out next week on Wednesday. Until then, stay clear of the fun police. <laughs>